You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Thank you, Rebecca. Good morning, church. Good to see you. Uh, My name is Brady Goodwin, and I have the honor of serving as one of the pastors here. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. So we continue this Advent season thinking about the incarnation of Christ, our Savior. Um, We'll be looking at Philippians 2 this morning and thinking about how Jesus became like us. Um, Philippians 2, we've heard this passage read already this morning as Lucia read, um, but we'll read it once more and pray and begin. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. The Word of God says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that by the Holy Spirit's working, you would strengthen us in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, that he would be preeminent in our hearts, that we would see the lengths to which he has gone to bring redemption and salvation to our lives and the incredible glory that he deserves and that he has been given by you. We pray that we would be helped where we are struggling and hurting and weary this morning as we come to you and as we are ministered to by your spirit in light of the truth of your word. We pray that this time would be pleasing to you, would honor you, and would strengthen us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I still remember the Christmas that Santa forgot me. Uh, It was a crisp West Texas morning in 1989. I was in Roby, Texas, which if you've heard of, points to you. Uh, I was five years old. I sprang out of bed, I hurtled myself to the Christmas tree at my grandparents' house, but to my great horror, there was nothing. It was as if the Grinch picked just that house for his Christmas larceny. And as I stood there, my mom came in the room and she saw my face, eyes overflowing like a levee about to break. And I looked to her and I said with that little five-year-old voice, Santa didn't come. What I didn't know and what my mom 
through her own tears, sought to assure me was that the presents for Christmas were in the other room. <laughs> they were next to a newly installed fireplace in a partially remodeled garage, put there in the misguided belief that because Santa came through the chimney, that's where the presents should be. And uh, I recovered, uh, I'm okay. Christmas was salvaged. And even though I can look back with levity at an episode like this 32 years later, many of us look at the season of Christmas as anything but the most wonderful time of the year. You and I have stories like mine, but stories that don't resolve with happy endings. The reasons for our sorrow are many. It could be death, divorce, job loss, addiction, broken relationships, unwanted singleness, family conflict, the feeling of being an outcast or an outsider, all accompanied by the deep longing for something different, but without the specter of shame, loneliness, or despair. And all this for those of us who are here who have tasted the grace of Jesus. The grief of these circumstances is only magnified for those who have never known the hope of Christ. But whatever our spiritual condition, the presence of past sorrow like this reminds us of tragedy's potential return. We know what can happen. We know how bad it can be. And we wonder when the other shoe is going to drop, when the unmistakable sting of suffering will return. The effects of these kinds of threats, especially when other people seem so full of joy, can leave us feeling quite alone. All around us is the message of joy in this season, but we only feel the weight of sorrow. In many ways, our suffering begets a kind of loneliness. And it's actually something that the scriptures witness to, as David will say in Psalm 25, 16, turn to me and be gracious to me for I am lonely and afflicted. The response that we typically make to our loneliness in seasons like these is to look to someone for help. Maybe it's family, maybe it's friends, maybe it's dating relationships, someone, anyone. This is understandable, normal even, and is a process that even secular thinkers have observed. Bessel van der Kolk in his uh, popular book on trauma, The Body Keeps the Score, says it in this way, the most natural way for human beings to calm themselves when they are upset is by clinging to another person. When we are hurting, we look for someone that we think can help. But the irony in our search for person-oriented comfort is that these people typically cannot bear up under the weight of our need. It's too great. Another human being on their own cannot provide the peace that we so long for. If Christmas or any other time of year is for us a season of lament and waiting and mourning, they may try to understand, they have well-meaning words of encouragement, but they fail in their attempts at empathy. They may excel at entering into the brokenness of our lives, but in the end, they still lack the power to effect re real redemptive change. What we need, if this is us, if this is our circumstance, is someone who can do both of these things. 
someone who can understand the necessity that undergirds our heart cries, but who can also make a meaningful difference to our sin brokenness and our suffering. Someone whose hope can break into our darkness with true light and true life. Someone who can truly know our hearts and whose love has the power to transform our lives. And of course, this someone is the focus of our time today. It's the focus of the passage of scripture that we just read. Jesus, who as one writer has put it, he did not come to earth merely to study us. He became like us. And so to this end of exploring how Jesus is both the person who can understand our need most directly, as well as the one who can help us most specifically, we are looking today at Philippians 2 and considering how Jesus became like us, how he left his glory and took on flesh, how he became like us and how he brings us hope today. To do this, we're gonna look at three truths that are found in this passage, but we're gonna narrow specifically on verses six through eight. We read the whole thing, but most of our time will be focusing in on that middle section. First thing we're gonna think about is how did Jesus regard his glory? How did he see himself? How did he reckon himself? Second, what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? This is a phrase that is a little confusing and we need to rightly understand what it means. But third, what was it that Jesus's humility accomplished? What did it achieve? And then lastly, we will look at how Jesus's work and the Father's exaltation of him are meant to overflow into our lives so that he can transform seasons of mourning into seasons of hope. So first, how did Jesus regard his glory? Look again at verse five. The passage begins with an exhortation. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Um, I don't like upending the order of a passage of scripture. God has inspired it to be read in a certain way. Uh, and so with some uh, understanding, I'm gonna look at this passage, this part of this passage at the end of our time, just for the sake of context, so that we can come back and see its significance as we conclude our time. But verse six is where we will begin thinking about how Jesus understood his position. Look at verse six. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Paul is here in Philippians 2, quoting from an early Christian hymn. Verses six through 11 are from a hymn that existed in the early church that Paul quotes as part of this passage. And this hymn summarized a kind of progression as it relates to Jesus, his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension and exaltation by God the Father. First thing that we see is that Jesus was in the form of God. This does not mean that Jesus merely appeared to be God, but rather that he was fully and completely God. He was God, the second person of the Trinity. As the gospel of John will attest, he was in the beginning with God and he was God. Elsewhere, the author of Hebrews will say that Jesus was the exact imprint of God. By being in the form of God, then he perfectly expressed who God is. Again, John will say in John 1:18 that no one has seen God, the only God. Some manuscripts say the only son, the only God. He has made him known. Second, though Jesus was in the form of God, the text says that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
Being fully God, he was just as deserving of the glory, just as rightful to the claim of lordship over creation as his father. This is what is meant by equality. The eternal son of God could no more lay aside his divinity than you or I, our humanity. It is who he is. So what the scriptures are teaching here is that Jesus, as the commentator Alec Motier will put it, he did not regard his equal status as Lord as something to be held to at all costs. He was on the throne. He was deserving of the throne. Yet he was willing to step down off the throne. This is an exceedingly important point. If Jesus was willing to set aside his claim as Lord of heaven and earth, it must have been for a compelling reason. It had to be. It must have been significant enough to prompt the Son of God to act. As the scriptures demonstrate, as your life and my life indicate and evidence, it is the curse of sin in this world and its accompanying effects that prompted Jesus to consider his glory as something worth denying. Our sorrow, our shame, our self-wrought destruction, our others-induced traumas. God's love was so great for us But he saw the futility and the frustration present in a world marred by sin and he resolved himself to act. Just as a parent responds to the pain of their children in an almost involuntary manner, so too does our suffering evoke the unending compassion of our Lord. Motier again describes the stunning nature of Jesus's perspective about himself. He says, this was the mind of Christ. He looked at himself, at his father and at us. And for obedience sake and for sinners sake, he held nothing back. He held nothing back. The way Jesus regarded his glory then led him to act in a concrete way. The text says that he emptied himself. By becoming, by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So that leads us to the second truth. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? So back when I was a seminary student, I had to translate and study the book of Philippians for one of my Greek courses. And in those days, the early aughts, we had uh, assignments that were on these yellow packets of paper. So if you went to Dallas Seminary back in 2007, 2008, you may remember those yellow packets. I was terrified of those things because it was a ton of work and there was always this like, do I get it right? Did I understand it correctly? Um, And it turns out I didn't. I'll never forget this verse in particular um, because of the accidental heresy that I committed in this class. Um, I described this phrase, he emptied himself. I said that Jesus laid aside aspects of his divinity to come to earth. Wrong. He did not do that. My professor, who was also one of my pastors at the time, a very gracious man, he corrected me and he did that wonderful teacher's thing where he said, hey, let let us remember, rather than highlighting me, that this is not what Jesus did. He helped us to be careful not to unintentionally step into untrue statements about the Lord. And so what does it mean? In emptying himself, Jesus did not lay aside any aspect of his divinity, as we have already said, but instead he emptied himself of the exercise of his lordship. John Calvin will say it like this, Christ indeed could not divest himself of Godhead, 
but he kept it concealed for a time. He laid aside his glory in the view of men, not by lessening it, but by concealing it. How did he do this? By becoming a human being. In saying that Jesus took on the form of a servant, Paul echoes Jesus' own words in Mark 10, 45, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Unless we think that somehow Jesus was not fully human, the word likeness in Philippians 2, 8, of being found in human form, or excuse me, 7, being born in the likeness of men, and in verse 8, being found in human form, This directly mirrors the way in which Jesus' divinity was described in verse six. He was in the form of God. Just as he was fully human, he was, or fully God, he was fully human. And so what it means then that Jesus emptied himself is that he voluntarily deprived himself of his claim to lordship and he became a human being. As one commentator has put it, Christ Jesus brought the whole of his divine nature undiminished into a new And had it not been revealed in scripture, an unimaginable state, unimaginable, something that had never been done. The 19th century missionary, Hudson Taylor, became notable in his ministry for doing what most other Western missionaries had not done to that point. He was ministering in China among the Chinese and he took on their appearance. He cut his hair as the Chinese did. He wore his clothes as the Chinese did and lived as they lived. And prior to this point, Western missionaries in any other part of the world typically established outposts where they could be secluded and set apart from those that they were serving and retained the aspects of their culture, regardless of what difference they had compared to those among whom they served. And he became a laughingstock of foreigners, as well as the Chinese. Taylor saw the need to enter in and become like those he desired to serve in the name of Christ. This kind of ministry is rightly called incarnational because it reflects the same kind of emptying that is described here in Philippians 2. Hudson Taylor was an innovator, but he was following the example of Christ who became like those he came to save. Taylor was ridiculed because others couldn't imagine that what he was doing would be fruitful. But if you know anything about his history, it was exceedingly fruitful. And he became, in many ways, what is known as the father of modern missions in Eastern Asia. He left behind status and privilege for a distinct purpose. And Jesus did exactly the same thing, only what Jesus did was so beyond our imagination, so outside of our expectations that it has an undeniable, real, and profound power. Jesus, by being fully God and then becoming fully man, was the only one who could fully save, the only one who could make things right. And this leads us to the third truth. What is it that Jesus' humility accomplished? Verse eight tells us that being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This Christian hymn that forms the basis for our passage continues to describe the progression of Jesus' ministry. He didn't regard his glory as something to hold on to, He laid aside his claim to lordship in becoming a human being 
And he humbled himself to fulfill the mission of God the Father. This mission was the salvation of the very creatures who bear his image, human beings. But the only way that Jesus could accomplish this was to take upon himself the pain, the punishment, and the shame that afflicted human beings from the first moment that sin entered into the world. It was not only necessary for Jesus to become like us, for us to experience true healing and redemption, he had to subject himself to the death that we deserved. This is what was prophesied from the very beginning of the scriptures and what was ultimately fulfilled through Jesus's incarnation, through his life, his death, and his resurrection. He had to truly become like us to experience the weight of the suffering of this world, to endure temptation with true faith and dependence on the Holy Spirit, to carry our sorrows and shame, to fully know us in all of our weaknesses and to become like us so that he could provide the help that we so desperately need. My favorite episode of the TV drama, The West Wing, Season two, episode 10, Noel. Have you seen it? Okay. (laughs) That's okay, still my favorite. It's a wonderful episode. It's Christmas time in this episode, so it's fitting that we talk about it this morning. But in this episode of The West Wing, we see an example of the kind of humility and sacrifice that's described here in Philippians 2. Josh Lyman, the deputy chief of staff in the Bartlett White House. Spoiler alert, he nearly dies at the end of season one as a result of an assassination attempt on the president and his daughter. Sorry, forgive me. It's really important to the story though. You need to understand it. It's only later that Josh begins to experience the effects of this trauma in his life. He almost died. He had incredible injury and he recovered slowly, but he begins around Christmas time to experience symptoms of post-traumatic stress. And in his fear and in his physical agitation, he begins to lash out at his coworkers, even ultimately doing so at the president in the Oval Office. Leo McGarry, his boss, is present in that conversation and he tells Josh, you're gonna go see a guy. Josh is like, no, I'm not gonna go see a guy. And Leo says, you're gonna go see a guy. So Josh goes and sits down with a trauma counselor to discuss what happens. Of course, it's my favorite episode. (laughs) And uh, he spends the day meeting with Stanley and his assistant, these counselors, and real progress begins to be made. Josh opens up about what's going on and he realizes how much his friends and his coworkers care for him. But he says something interesting because in the episode, he's diagnosed with PTSD and he says to the counselor, he said, I don't think that's the kind of thing they let you have if you work at the White House. So think of that mindset, what Josh is thinking about himself and his future. And so he leaves on his way out and he sees Leo waiting in the lobby. And he says, did you wait for me? Leo says, how'd it go? Leo himself knew what it was like to struggle with the weight of brokenness, himself being a recovering alcoholic. And after Josh realizes that Leo waited to stay for, you know, stayed to wait for him, he shares what happened. 
Leo's response is stunning. He tells him a story. This is the story he says. He says, this guy's walking down the street and he falls in a hole. The walls are so steep, he can't get out. A doctor passes by and the guy shouts up, hey, can you help me out? The doctor writes him a prescription, throws it down the hole and moves on. Then a priest comes along and the guy shouts up, hey, father, I'm down in this hole, can you help me out? The priest writes out a prayer, throws it down the hole and moves on. Then a friend walks by. Hey, Joe, it's me, can you help me out? And the friend jumps in the hole. Our guy says, are you stupid? Now we're both down here. And the friend says, yeah, but I've been down here before and I know the way out. In this moment, Leo incarnates the kind of love that we have been discussing in Philippians 2. So of course, the analogy breaks down at some point. But the message is clear. Humble, sacrificial love enters the sufferings of others so that others' suffering can be transformed. Humble, sacrificial love, it enters into the suffering of other people so that others' sufferings can be transformed. The only way Leo could help Josh is because he understood what Josh was experiencing. And in the same way, but even greater, Jesus became like us so that he could walk in our shoes, so that he could heal our wounds, so that he could save our souls. This ought to bowl you and I over. It ought to knock us down, to level us, to humble us, and to thrill us. I love that we sang, O Holy Night, a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. Jesus became like us. He knows the very things that you are facing because he has faced them himself. Because he is like us, he can intercede for us. He can help us where we have need. The author of Hebrews will so incredibly describe Jesus' priestly ministry in this way in Hebrews 4. He says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And so what we have said thus far is this. Jesus regarded his glory as something to lay aside so that he could become like us, so that he, by humbling himself, could be the savior, the person who knows us, the person who can help us, the one that we so desperately need. These truths, they have to overflow into a response. They compel a response in our hearts. And our last consideration then is how Jesus's work, how the Father's response are meant to translate into our lives today. And so the last part of this passage describes the response of God the Father. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus became like us. He suffered the death that we deserve. He took on the shame and the sorrows that we have carried, but he was resurrected in glorious power. 
When he ascended into heaven, he once again assumed the rightful place that he had on the throne seated at the right hand of the Father. In the end, his humiliation led to our salvation and his exaltation. It led to us seeing redemption and him being gloried. It's this work then that Paul references in verse five when he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse five uh, contrasts prohibitions that are given in verses three uh, three and four. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Our sinfulness, our suffering, they lead us to a typical response which is to turn inwards, to too often respond in destructive and harmful ways that are always rooted in a failure to see Jesus as he truly is. So we may see him as Lord in his glory, high and lifted up, but we are afraid. We fear that we have ruined our chance at fellowship with him because of our choices. Conversely, we assume that he cannot understand the loneliness, the sorrow, the desolation that we feel day in and day out, our shame, that false narrative of exposure and condemnation. It keeps us from him. Yes, the Lord is high and lifted up, but he is also lowly. He is like us. He understands your circumstances. He knows what it is like to hurt, to grieve, to suffer, to be afflicted. He knows what it is like to be mistreated, to be harmed, to be neglected. He willingly stepped into these situations so that he could transform them, so that he could transform you and me. So our response then, like last week, and what Shea preached is for us to behold the wondrous mystery that is the incarnation of Jesus. The one who was in heaven, but who became small. The one who was full of glory, but who followed the path of humiliation. The one who could demand our exaltation, but instead demonstrated his love. The one who will never disappoint us, who will always shoulder our shame, who accepts us freely and forever by his grace. The one who is hope and the one who is our hope, Jesus Christ, the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that these words are true, that Jesus in his humility and in his love, took on flesh and became like us so that he could save to the utmost. Help us to see this as the beautiful truth we need this morning to remind us of your care for us in the midst of hard days, difficulty. Be with us now as we come to your table and remember Jesus' broken body and his shed blood for us. That our hearts would be strengthened. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. 
A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus Christ. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.